Welcome to Chapels from Rosedale Bible College. Thanks for joining our community for weekly chapels recorded on our campus in Rosedale, Ohio. We hope you are challenged and inspired by what you hear. Enjoy. Hey, it is good to be together, and uh, it's good to see you all back, and I hope you're settling in in spite of the uh, chill in the air today. I love the fact that we opened up this chapel with that song, talking about uh, how the, uh, the gospel moves through and is passed along to the witness of the church for generation after generation after generation. Uh, I want to offer you this quote to think about kind of along those lines. Who's, is somebody running the PowerPoint? Good? Here's the, here's the quote. So this comes from Stanley uh, Hauras, uh, a fellow scholar, a fellow believer and scholar. And he says this, uh, I hope you can read it. One of the great problems of evangelical life in America is evangelicals think that they have a personal relationship with God that, the, well, that's a mistype, huh? That they then go to church to express. But church is a secondary phenomenon to their personal relationship, and I think that's to get it exactly backwards. Well, why does he say that? He goes on to say this, the Christian faith is a mediated faith. It only comes through the witness of others as embodied in the church. So evangelicals, I'm afraid, oftentimes make the church a secondary phenomenon to their assumed faith, and I think that's making it very hard to maintain disciplined congregations. So there's a lot to kind of chew on and unpack. Uh, and we're not going to work at it real intently off his quote here. But he's saying so many Christians today uh, think of their faith as this really private thing. And then the church is the place that you go to express that. Like that's the place that you go to sort of worship and show your devotion to Jesus, rather than understanding that the church is actually the place that gives life and breath uh, to your faith, mediates the faith from Christ to us. So I don't want you to think about that. One of the passions that we have here at RBC is that uh, you grow in your faith, and that you grow in your love for Christ's body. And admittedly, there are all kinds of reasons, many of you have experienced them yourself, uh, to make you wonder, make a person wonder about this thing we call the church, this thing the Bible calls the church. And so uh, this morning, I, what I want to do um, is I'd like to look at some of what the scripture, some of the commands that the scripture gives us as it relates to how we live together as the people of God. And then I want to tell you a number of stories uh, about the church. And so uh, I hope that by the time we're finished, you'll find it helpful. There are about 100 one another statements in the New Testament. Here is a short overview. We're not going to read all 100. About one-third of the one another statements in the New Testament 
deal with unity in the church. So you have commands like this, be at peace with one another. That's Jesus talking to the church about how we live together. Be at peace with one another. Don't grumble among one another. Be of the same mind with one another. From Romans 15, accept one another. Don't bite, devour, and consume one another. From Galatians 5. Don't boastfully challenge or envy one another. Also from Galatians 5. Here's one from Ephesians 4. Gently, patiently tolerate one another, as Wesley does so graciously with Teddy. Here's from Ephesians, uh, excuse me, Colossians chapter 3. Bear with and forgive one another. Seek good for one another. Don't repay evil for evil, right? So these commands are like, here's how to be as the body of Christ. About a third of these instructions, these one another instructions in the New Testament, instruct believers to love one another, right? So there's a whole plethora of scriptures in the New Testament that simply say this, love one another. Through love, serve one another from Galatians 5. And here it is again, tolerate one another in love. Be devoted to one another in love. About 15% of these one another passages stress an attitude of humility in the church or deference to each other. So give preference to one another in honor from Romans 12. Regard one another as more important than yourselves. Serve one another. Don't be haughty, be of the same mind. Be subject to one another. Clothe yourselves in humility towards, towards each, uh, toward one another. And here's just a smattering of the rest. So, we're, you know, I, like I said, we're not going to do all 100. I just want you, to, I want you to understand the weight of the New Testament and its instructions to us as believers for the way that we engage each other as the body of Christ. So here's a few more. Don't judge one another. Don't put a stumbling block in a brother's way. Bear one another's burdens. From Galatians 6, another one from Ephesians 4, speak truth to one another. Don't lie to one another from Colossians 3. Comfort one another. Encourage and build up one another. Pray for one another from James 5. Be hospitable to one another from 1 Peter 4. Right, so that list could go on. Now I want to ask you a few questions after you've heard some of that list. Uh, if these instructions are actually from God, how do we actually obey Jesus on these things if we aren't actually committed to each other in the body? Right? If the church is something you go do as simply an expression of your internal faith in Christ, if that's what the church is, kind of a like a a secondary piece of faith, and you aren't actually committed to other believers, how do you carry out these one another's? How does that, how does that actually work in a practical, very real way? For instance, um, how can, we'll keep coming back to you guys, how can Wesley <laughs> tolerate Teddy if he doesn't actually know Teddy, how does he actually like carry that out? 
how do you tolerate somebody if you've never gotten to know them well enough to be irritated by them? Or if you only go to church with people like you, well, who exactly are you tolerating? Or how do we forgive each other if we've never actually gotten close enough to another person in the church to be hurt by them? Right, so if you're, the, if you're the last person in, you sit on the back row and you're the first person out and that's the extent of your involvement, how do you actually, like, what do these verses mean? How do you forgive? How do you tolerate? How do you love? Like, what, what, is the, what are these verses describing? How are we to, for instance, devote ourselves to, to each other if, in fact, the option of leaving is always on the table for us? Like, we're constantly entertaining the idea, well, if I get tired of this particular body of believers, I can move on, I'll find another one. Well, what does devotion actually mean then? Like, why would Jesus say these things to us? Why, why would we be instructed to be devoted if that's not actually what it, like, if there's not a sense of devotion there? Because devotion actually doesn't mean something until we choose to stay when it would be easier to leave. That's, what, that's where devotion actually is present. <laughs> the New Testament instructions to the church are impossible to follow when we aren't actually committed to an actual group of people. The church I pastored for about 12 years was far from perfect. In fact, some of you were there, so you know. Uh, because I happened to be there and you were there, so we know it was not perfect. But I wanted to uh, tell you some stories about some folks from our merry band of followers. Um, this will be a little bit interesting because, you know, Rache, you were there, so you probably know a few of these folks. <laughs> but I just want to tell you some stories um, about how how God uses the church uh, in different ways. Um, some of you have heard some of these stories before, so if you already have, then bear with me, and I hope you can enjoy them anyway. When, when I was there, uh, for most of my time there, there was this little lady from uh, West Virginia. She was uh, uh, a little spitfire. Um, her husband had died many years before. She'd actually become a believer late in life. One of the elders at our church had led her to the Lord. And uh, so she joined our church. And her name was Maybell. And a couple of things about Maybell that were always really interesting. Um, you never knew what you were going to get with Maybell. She loved huge, gaudy jewelry usually the, the really bright green costume jewelry. So huge earrings, big necklaces. And uh, she always had painted on eyebrows. And usually uh, every Sunday was just a little different version. Uh, so you never knew what you were going to get, which is always fun. And uh, Maybell didn't have much money. And so the church... Uh, provided for her utilities. We'd pay for her gas and electric. She had a little house in a neighboring town. And one of the, one of the men in our church was a wealthy businessman, and he was 
he always looked after her. He put new cabinets in her house and just did stuff for her, made sure her yard got mowed. And then there was another couple who was retired and Mabel had lots of uh, doctor's appointments. So they would take her to the doctor's appointments because she couldn't drive. So she lived by herself. She would take her to take the, they would take her to the doctor's appointments and they would bring her to church. And along the way, uh, at some point, this uh, little ex-Amish girl from our community got saved and started coming to our church too. And uh, she, I think she went to school through eighth grade and she had a dream of becoming a nurse one day. So she started college uh, and, and she was in her early 20s and she started, got her GED, started college and got her nursing degree. And uh, she, for whatever reason, had this heart for Maybell, and so she would periodically stop by Maybell's house and check up on her. And one day, Maybell fell, and she fractured her arm. Maybell was, was very stubborn. In fact, uh, uh, one time I had to go with Maybell to her cardiologist because her pacemaker needed to be replaced, but she thought her cardiologist was messing with her and didn't know what he was talking about, and there's no way she was getting her pacemaker replaced. And so she said, you need to come with me uh, and, and tell my cardiologist that I am not getting a new pacemaker. And I knew she was kind of wanting me to like make sure the op, you know, make sure she really needed it. But anyway, so I showed up and she had it out for her cardiologist. Anyway, we've got it straightened out. She got a new pacemaker. That's, she was just really stubborn like that, but in a funny way. Well, anyway, so she fell, fractured her arm. I mean, it was, it was obviously broken. And uh, this little ex-Amish girl, Ruby, actually had stopped by her house on the way home from school, and right, maybe it was work, I don't remember, but she discovered Maybell lying on the floor, uh, unable to move and in tremendous amount of pain. And right away, she wanted to call the ambulance, but Maybell wouldn't let her. There's no way she needed to go to the hospital. And so Ru you know, Ruby's calling around, what do I do with Maybell? And she ended up staying the night with Maybell that night, and uh, and then finally in the morning, Maybell relented and they called an ambulance and they took her to the hospital. And I mean, she had surgery and a lot of therapy. Um, but anyway, it was so sweet to watch uh, Ruby take care of Maybell then. Uh, just a side note, this probably is extra and doesn't need to be said, but it's kind of funny. We actually, Maybell, there were several times that I thought Maybell was gonna die. Uh, and we kind of joked about her having nine lives because she just didn't die. She'd go into ICU, and then she'd come out, and she'd be fine. And one time, somebody else in our church had actually died. And so the grave markers, the guys who were digging the grave were out at the grave site, and it just so happened that Maybell was back in the ICU, and the doctor came, and uh, he, he pulled us together and said, look, uh, this is it. Maybell's organs are shutting down. You know, this is the end. And so I called back to the church and I said, we should just mark another grave because this is really morbid, but it, you know, it made sense at the time. And so uh, we marked out Maybell's grave. Lo and behold, she didn't die. And uh, <laughs> so we had no funeral for her then. Uh, she did end up dying later. What's that? <laughs> she, she did end up dying later. And just another side note, uh, on the way out to her gravesite, the pallbearers, there was just these cackles of laughter behind me. 
It's like, what is going on? This is not funeral, normal funeral procedures. We're walking out of the gravesite. And, and uh, the guy who had led her to the Lord was just laughing. He said, he remembered the time when Mabel called him and said she needed to be bailed out from jail. He said, why? So he shows up, and apparently there was a nice young man that had showed up to her house one day, and Maybell's son had passed on, and she had his driver's license and a social security card, or like a, a birth certificate or something, and the young man wanted to know if he could borrow those because he needed to be able to drive his car to work. And so out of the goodness of her heart, she loaned him her son's driver's license, social security number, whatever, so that he could get to work. Well, that ended her up in jail, so just don't do that. But uh, anyway, so they were remembering this story that they went and bailed Mabel out of jail. But anyway, I had to think about, like, this all happens in the context of the church. Like, in what context does a, a, a little spitfire West Virginian lady uh, get taken care of by a wealthy business person who just cares for her needs, a middle-aged retired couple, uh, not middle-aged, uh, a retired couple who looks after her, a little ex-Amish nurse who takes care of her. And uh, by the way, I should tell you this, Maybell uh, had a list of every single person in our church and all their birthdays. You remember this, Roche, and she'd send a little uh, birthday card to every single person in our church. She had no money. <laughs> But that was like a thing for her. And she brought so much to the congregation. So, so in what context in our culture does that kind of scenario play out? I remember one time uh, our church was uh, remodeling the sanctuary to get a bit more room. And there was kind of a debate uh, some of you will roll your eyes because it's real classic. Like we had, we had benches, we had pews, but the reality was we could get more space if we put chairs in the sanctuary. And so we were trying to figure out how do we maximize our space? And there were of course people that didn't want to get rid of the pews because of, you know, that symbolizes a certain thing. But the practical, you know, requirements were like, well, we need chairs in the sanctuary. So it was kind of a, a debate back and forth. And um, so it's just like, well, let's just, let's just vote on that, you know, because what are we going to do? So uh, one, of our, one of our elders, Jim, really opposed to the pews. And uh, I mean, not in a mean way, but it just felt really strongly about it. But uh, we had a vote, and it was like, well, let's just do chairs. It makes, it makes practical sense. We'll just do chairs. We can get more people in and so on. So we, we did chairs. We voted, church voted for chairs. But then we had uh, a night where everybody that was able would show up and we were gonna tear out all the pews, tear out all the carpet and get the renovation started. Well, you know who the first person was who was there that night and intentionally so to help pull out all the pews? It was Jim. And it, it was important for him to model submission to the rest of the body. So he was there first. He was there till the very end, helping pull out the pews that he did not want to pull out. But he was modeling something to the church. 
that the whole was more important than him. I remember one of the most uh, impactful evenings of my time as a pastor was when uh, someone in our church, a, a husband, had an affair and uh, just devastating. He had a family, wife, children. It was devastating. And uh, uh, there was so much hurt and pain. And we weren't entirely sure how to handle this. Uh, he had a fair bit of influence in the church. And uh, so what we ended up doing was calling together his friends, uh, calling together some of the leaders of the church. And um, we sat down together. And as a couple, they shared their heart, their the wife shared her pain, um, and the husband confessed and repented. Um, uh, and that repentance is a long process, but uh, shared with his friends and church leaders just uh, the <laughs> the sin that he'd been involved in. And there was weeping and uh, a lot of tears because that kind of scenario is immensely painful. But what I remember is this. I remember watching the body of Christ gather around and pray for this husband and wife. And I remember... Um, the sense of care and protection and the desire uh, to see God heal and restore this marriage. And this is what I remember really clearly, that God's people were mediating God's forgiveness into the lives of this couple and this man in particular. God's, God's care for the wife and God's forgiveness, um, he wasn't off the hook, and uh, there's always a price to pay. But I had to wonder, like, what happens if he moves through that in silence and in quietness, and the grace of God isn't mediated through his people. And I'm not saying that's the right way to handle it every time. I, I, I don't know that. But what I watched happen was that God's people mediated God's heart into the lives of these people in a powerful way. And I wondered what happens when you have to walk through that without God's people. One more story. Um, <clears throat> there's a, another gym in our congregation, uh, not Elder Jim, but a different one. And um, he, was, he was often in kind of a sour mood. He had some serious health issues. He had Crohn's disease. So a lot of his life, he just never felt well, you know, um, 
Aside from that, he hated modern worship music, which is what we played at our church. Uh, he loved Southern gospel. Uh, one day, he stopped by my office, as he periodically did, and he dropped off this like CD. It was a promotional DVD. For actually, it was uh, a ministry here in Columbus, uh, Agora. So he, he had this, he loved what Agora was doing, and he wanted me to see this promotional DVD. And so, uh, you know, I set it on the corner of my desk and just completely forgot about it. So a couple of years later, uh, Jim stopped by my office and wondered if I had that promotional DVD. Hey, would you, would you have that promotional DVD? I'd like to have it back. And I looked around wherever I knew to look, and I could not find this. As you might imagine, uh, two years with me uh, trying to keep things organized doesn't always work out well. Uh, I didn't think he looked real bothered at the time, and he left his office, and I told him, hey, I'll hunt for it for a while, and I'll, I'll call you back. So I did. I looked for it, and I just, I determined that it probably was one of those countless promotional videos that I eventually just threw away, and so I called Jim up to apologize. Hey, I, you know, I'm really sorry. I probably threw this away. I did not expect, on the other end of that phone, the anger that I received, because Jim was livid with me. Um, this DVD was his brother's copy and was really important to him. And so realizing that I had made a really big mistake, I actually called uh, the ministry here in Columbus about getting another copy. So I thought, well, I'll just try to get another copy and make this right. Well, lo and behold, uh, the people I talked to did not have a clue that there was even a first copy. Uh, they didn't know this thing had been made, at which point I felt the panic in me slightly rising. Uh, and I knew that my plans for reconciliation just got an, a lot harder. So uh, with my tail between my legs and fear in my heart, uh, one Sunday morning, that next Sunday morning, I went to talk with Jim uh, before church about my failure. Well, as I talked with Jim, he always sat on the back bench and as I talked with him about, you know, I called, they don't have it, they don't remember making it, and I don't know how to make this right. I apologized, but Jim never said a word and never looked at me. He just looked straight ahead. And so I wasn't sure how to leave this. And so I sort of walked away. And then if you're a pastor and you need to preach after that kind of a conversation, that is not fun, I should tell you. If you're going to have a hard conversation, don't do it before church. <laughs> Anyway, a week later, I wrote a letter. I again told him I was really sorry about losing um, the DVD. Uh, and that letter went unresponded to. So this silence went on for six months. And I, I hate unresolved conflict. So I, I want to get stuff straightened out. So this was like, this is tearing me up because I don't like those things hanging out there. And uh, so this went on. And then one day, Jim and Bonnie stopped by my office uh, at the church. Jim was coming from the doctor, and he'd just been diagnosed with serious cancer and was given just a few months to live. And he wanted to know if I'd pray with him. A couple days later, and again, nothing was said at the time about this DVD, but I was thrilled to be able to pray with him uh, and 
devastated by that news. Several days later, Jim stopped by my office again, and he, he wanted to talk. And in that, in that meeting, Jim apologized for the way he treated me, and he wanted my forgiveness. And he was a man on a mission, seeking to make right the things that were wrong. And we cried together, and we prayed. And a few weeks later, Jim died. What I want to tell you is, this is the church. Like the church is a place with broken people, uh, a place where extending forgiveness is necessary, where tolerating one another in love is necessary. The church is not just a place you go to sort of prove to yourself that you actually have faith. The church is God's people, where God's people live together and gather together and are together where we live out these commands in the New Testament for the way that we're called to be. And I want to invite you all into that. You have changed here at Rosedale over the course of the last year, if you've been here all year. And by the end of spring semester, uh, you'll hopefully have changed a bit more. Those of you who are just starting will have changed some. And as you think about your congregations, you might be tempted to launch into critiques, to grow impatient, to feel frustrated because you're going back to this church and you've changed, you've, you're maturing and you're changing spiritually and you've got these new ideas, these, these new ways of thinking about faith. And I want you to remember who we are together, that we're God's family, we're called to love, we're called to tolerate, we're called to serve. So choose to love the people that God saw fit to have you involved with. You aren't in your church by accident. You could have been born anywhere in all the world. You could have ended up in any church in all the world. And I invite you to embrace where you're at, to love the people with whom God placed you, to be faithful there. Let's pray. God, I thank you for your body, your kingdom. I thank you for the way that you use your church and your people to shape our lives in the way that you use us to contribute to the life of the body. And I pray now, Lord, that you'd bless this group to that end, that you would grow their love, that you'd grow their commitment, and their desire to serve the people that you've placed them with. For your sake, your glory, and for our joy, we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. You are dismissed. Go in peace. Thanks for listening. If you found this episode helpful, please share so others can benefit from it as well. And be sure to check out our other podcasts at rosedale.edu slash podcasts.